0: Welcome to Jazz Talk Seattle. This is our August episode. My name is Max, and I'm here with...
1: Josh Howe,
0: And our special guest this month is
2: Mr. John Bishop. Hey. Hello, John. Hey. Hey. Nice to, nice to uh, not see you guys.
0: <laughs> yeah, we're doing a, a socially distanced recording
2: at uh, our own
0: homes for this mm-hmm. episode. Uh, John is a fantastic drummer, educator, record label owner, graphic designer, publisher, festival presenter... The list goes on. Uh, He's a a good friend of mine, uh, fantastic figurehead in the Seattle scene, uh, and his list of musicians that he's played with is quite formidable. It includes Benny Golson, Bobby Hutcherson, Ernestine Anderson, and plenty more. Um, Thanks for being here, John. Yeah. Oh yeah, my pleasure, my pleasure. Thanks for asking. Yeah, of course. So I I thought we would just kind of talk about a bunch of different things uh, that you do because you do so many different things. And they're all kind of related to jazz and and pretty interesting. Cool. Uh, Can we just get started and and talk about how you got started playing drums?
2: Uh, Yeah, yeah. My friend uh, Bobby Smith, who lived right behind us uh, in Virginia in 1968, he joined a little uh, drum corps, and then I felt like I should join too, and uh, so I started playing drums. And I think it probably the second week we were doing that, uh, they had a, a clinic, and they brought in Joe Morello. Oh, okay. So, <laughs> so I was like eight or nine, and here was Joe Morello, and it was you know just a few years after uh, Take Five and all that. So uh, just kind of thrown into that, and my uh, my dad had lots of records that we, uh, heard every weekend from starting from when I was a toddler. He bought uh, kind of blue just shortly after I was born. So all those records were in my life. And then the drumming thing for some reason just, uh, seemed fun. And I just kind of kept doing that, uh, getting together with friends. And so, uh, anyway, that's the boring start, but then, uh, junior high, I was playing and, uh, and uh, we had just moved to Oregon, and so didn't have many friends or anything. But I had drum sets, so I just kind of jammed for several years. And um, and then by the time I was in high school, we had a really strong program down in in uh, Eugene, and uh, just a bunch of us were playing. And the band director was real supportive of us screwing around and doing whatever. So you know, out of we'd be in the middle of uh, our school day and he'd come in and go, Hey, you guys want to play at six o'clock down at this hotel, this party going on, they need a band. Oh. So, uh, there was that kind of energy of just like, Oh, okay. This is how life goes. You, uh, you play an instrument, you have a good time and then, uh, you get work and you make some money when you're 16 years old and, uh, that's life. Good. Great. So um, anyway, that's the way that progressed. I just played all through high school and uh, started doing gigs with, uh, with cohorts. And with, uh, there was an old piano player in town named Emmett Williams. And I used to do a three nights a week at a restaurant, just piano uh, background music when I was like 17. And then I was playing in a, in a uh, lounge band in a stinky club doing, you know, Neil Diamond hits. and Oh, yeah. Um, And then uh, got into a nine-piece funk band that did dances all through my college days. And whoa! uh, So anyway, that that was just you know I kind of just started doing it, and I fell into a a really nice situation where a bunch of talented people, um, who are many of them are still friends now, and they have, uh, you know, they're around the world in different places still playing music. So, uh, uh, the music thing was just kind of too easy, I think, for us. Kind of like, you know, you guys coming through Roosevelt and Garfield, how everything's just kind of set up for you. Yeah, uh, pretty fortunate to have that. Yeah, yeah, indeed.
0: Indeed. So, I have a question. Uh, Did you, having, I mean, considering that you weren't really a drummer at the time, did you know who Joe Morello was when you came to do a clinic? Uh,
2: Yeah, actually they, uh, the only reason I think I knew who it was at the time was because they originally were talking about Gene Krupa coming through to do it. But then he couldn't. So they had Joe Morello. So, you know, I'm eight years old. So, uh, you know, what do I know exactly? But, um, no, it seemed like uh, oh, this is cool. This is awesome, this, this is great, you know. And, and my dad, being you know, he was a collector of records, and um, one time I went through his 78s and I and I found out that he had like eighteen copies of Body and Soul, eighteen different mm-hmm. versions. <laughs> so oh, uh, you know, and, and so uh, it was all kind of just part of everyday life i think so it just uh it was cool but it was not that big a deal to you know see some stuff wonderful i mean yeah
0: nice so so it sounds like you moved around a lot
2: well my Uh, dad was yeah my dad was with uh civilian personnel with the army so when uh i was seven months old we moved to germany for four years and then we moved to washington dc for five years and then san antonio texas and then my dad died down there and we moved uh the family moved up to eugene where our uh grandparents and everybody were so uh so did eugene and then uh and then moved up here in 81 when i was like 22 years old Hmm. to do a gig and i just never left
1: wow so I've got a question. Uh, I actually grew up moving around a lot as a kid as well. And for my musical education, I, I started out on piano um, because I was moving so much. Um, and most of the schools that I was at just didn't really have any sort of a band program. It just meant that I spent a lot of time playing solo piano. Yeah. And for you, did you get uh, band programs to be a part of? Or did you spend time playing solo drums? Or how, how exactly did that work as a drummer?
2: No, I, I did. It was uh, funny. Like, yeah, when I got, I got my first little drum uh, with a cymbal attached when I was maybe nine or something. <laughs> and uh, there was a, a neighbor friend who had a crappy guitar. And so we would sit around and make up uh, tunes about, aren't you fine drinking your wine? you know, that kind of stuff. <laughs> and, uh, and so there was always something like that going. There was like, uh, just, uh, you know, playing music with friends and, and then we did have band programs. So, um, especially when I got into junior high, we just had a, a great guy running the, th- the program down in Eugene and, mm. um, and it was just real loose and, Eugene was a hippie town, and it was it's just nice. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, back then even even more so, and it was um it was just real conducive to just doing stuff, you know, playing. so I did junior symphony and I did a uh, concert band, and then there was the jazz group the jazz band too, and then I had a, a a rock band when I was fifteen, sixteen, and we'd do junior high school dances. so um I think. Part of it about uh, about probably the same reason that I do the stuff I do now is back then, you know, you come into a new town and you're trying to figure out who you are and where you fit in and mm-hmm. build some sort of community. And uh, the music thing was just a natural for for me and for finding that so yeah when I got into Eugene it was just kind of like you hook up with a few people who play instruments and you just start bands and it was just that searching for some sort of community you know yeah you.
1: and did you just as as a, um, I guess as an adult now the way I would go about doing that in a new city is to hang out at uh, jazz jams and sessions. How did you do that as a junior high school student?
2: Well, fortunately, they the, the just the band program was so good, and there were you know, uh, in junior high school, one of my friends was Richard Smith, who was uh, who was the youngest head of the studio guitar program at USC. He's been at USC yeah. for I don't know how many years now. And then uh, Mike Denny, who was another guitar player who uh, was just screaming, great player, and uh, uh, another friend, Frank Griffith, who teaches in uh, London. And so just all these people were there. It was just, uh, you know, these people that would just – go along that same path just like I'm a musician and that's uh, cool and now I teach at USC now you know so um so there was a lot of energy there like uh oh like Mike Denny even when I was in junior high you would we would play and he'd look and he'd go is that what you meant to play I'd <laughs> <laughs> be like yeah it's what I meant to play so, and then you'd have to go back and figure out what it was you did and and then uh have a good reason that you played that way you know so mm-hmm. it, it was like this uh, you know the we were teaching each other and we were abusing each other and trying to make each other other better you know so um that went way back to then junior high and especially in high school starting then there was just a real uh, everybody wanted to be good
0: mm.
2: yeah it definitely helps to have a, a scene at yeah. that age yeah no kidding
0: no so kidding. Yeah, so since then, I mean, you've, you've played all over the place, uh, you know, we, we can get into that as much as we want to. Um, I've, I've heard a, a bit of a rumor that you had a rather unique experience with something Ooh. called Windows XP.
2: Oh, yeah, that. Uh, <laughs> well, do you want
0: to tell us a little bit about what happened there?
2: Well, that uh, yeah. Let's see. That's uh, we had our trio news stories with Mark Seals and Doug Miller, Um and we got going in late in the late '80s, and we're playing a lot um, around town, doing a lot of stuff. And uh, what were some
0: yeah. of the clubs around town back then? Just if we can get a brief snapshot of of where people played in the late '80s in
2: Seattle. Uh, well, there was just so much stuff going on. We, were, I mean, Jazz Alley would we'd play there. Mm-hmm. Few few times a month and then uh, uh, Tula's wasn't around until 87 88 later on mm-hmm. um, but um, uh, Lake Union Cafe downtown there were the the hotels the Sheraton the Hilton there was mm-hmm. like probably five hotels that had music going oh, Wow! you could come in and do uh, you know a lot of them were kind of set or shows kind of things but a bunch of them were just playing rooms And I don't know, there was just a lot of stuff going on. Yeah. So uh, we were playing and, uh, uh, oh, yeah, so Windows XP was coming up and they were working on it. And one of the people involved with uh, getting content um, for it uh, knew us and used to come to our gigs. And she called up one day and just said, um, I need to do sample music for windows XP. I called up universal music and said, we'd like to do a little, you know, needle drop little one minute thing. And they said, Oh yeah, great. Uh, 30,000 bucks. And, uh, so her, and so her idea was, well, if I'm going to drop money, why not do it with, um, you know, people I know, what difference does it make? So she gave me a call and, um, and you know, and she said, uh, here's a little pile of money to, uh, we'll just use this tune off your last record. And then, uh, and then she called up a few weeks later and said, our budget's been cut a little bit, so it'll be half that. And it'll be like, well, oh, no. okay, whatever. And then uh, a few weeks later she calls back she goes, It looks like our budget's been cut and it'll actually be nothing. But what? <laughs> well we'll use your tone. <laughs> yeah, it's like Microsoft couldn't quite afford to pay. But anyway, uh are But so we weren't along for the ride anyway, just because uh, just because. But um, So, But how it's worked out is, um, you know, Windows XP went into 700 million computers, um, and it it was at a time when you didn't have Napster, you didn't have music uh, coming into it, you didn't have, nobody had, everybody had dial-up connections, so there wasn't streaming music, there wasn't all of that. So, basically, every single person that bought Windows XP heard our tune. So... Like, through our distributor, once we, uh, you know, I had Origin Records at that point. So, through our distributor, I'd see orders for, you know, 200 copies. And then a couple months later, it'd be 200 more copies. And and you just start seeing that it's, oh, this is like people are responding to that tune on Windows XP. Why Hmm. else would we be shipping a CD to China, you know? Wild. Uh, No good reason otherwise. Um, Wow. So anyway, so it was kind of like, okay, so we've sold a few thousand records and it's all because of that. That worked out fine. But then um, mm-hmm. later, uh, once YouTube came around and, you know, so this is many years later, YouTube's around uh, and they worked out a digital deal with uh, The Orchard to monetize videos. And then all of a sudden I see money coming in, Um for the use of that tune. And so it ends it up that there's hundreds and hundreds of cat videos with that tune. <laughs> oh, as, you're as kidding. As background music for oh, videos. No. <laughs> and, uh, and so we get paid for all of that. Wow. So anyway, we made all of our money back that we didn't get paid from Microsoft and it's uh, it's worked out just fine. Thank you very much. That is hilarious. And-
0: Wow.
1: I'm so glad that it ended up working out at the end, and I maybe Chat I shouldn't videos. be maybe I shouldn't be surprised, but I'm still kind of floored that uh, Microsoft wouldn't shell out for it. No, 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 no. that
2: that's yeah. I mean, that's the thing about the music biz, isn't it? It's like uh, how many times do you walk in a door and they go, uh, you know, we don't really want you, but if you're here, we won't pay you. You know, it's just like it's mm-hmm. a, it's not a good business. Uh, but, uh, through all that, you figure out what makes sense for you and you rationalize, why would I do this? Obviously I'm getting shafted. Why would I do this? And, Mm -hmm. uh, so you've got to come up with things that, why would I do this? Okay. It's, you know, it's uh, taking part because this one thing is the woman at Microsoft. Uh, her career was not stopping; she was going to be moving forward. We were doing her a favor. She liked us. What would this mean five years down the road? You know, stuff like that. So it's it's. I'm thinking relationships a lot of the time uh, uh-huh. when most people, uh, I suppose, would think, "Wow, no thanks, no deal, no, no thanks." Uh-huh. You know what I mean? Well, congratulations yeah. on being
0: on the track that whoever visits Earth in the year 3000 will find when they do some research and dig up an old copy of Windows XP.
2: Isn't that awesome. the truth?
0: <laughs> we live <laughs> forever. <laughs> oh, man. Well, hey, that's cool. Uh, what, what, what advice would you give uh, anyone who encounters a situation like that now?
2: Uh well, I mean, I, I'm only speaking for me. Uh, basically, the only reason that I have anything that I have, in, like the record business and uh, and the festival and all this stuff, um, is only because I'll give any pretty much anything a chance. You know, if something comes up, it's kind of like, oh, okay, I'll give that a try. I'll see where that leads. Uh, you got to be ready to, you know, bail quickly if it doesn't. But um, I just notice a lot of people, and I think over the last 20 years, probably more so, where you just see people who go, uh, oh, yeah, no, I don't like that. No, thanks. I pass. And um, that was just never for the the people I used to work with and for in the old days. Um, that was never a thing. It was always like, uh, yeah, let's dive in. Let's see what happens here because uh, you don't know what's going to come out the other side, uh, let's take a look.
0: Definitely.
2: Hmm. I think you gotta got to, especially in the arts and things, you know, none of this is, uh, there's no playbook that's been written. It's like, uh, you know, everybody's career is going to take weird paths. And it's all because of the choices you make at these weird little moments, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and for me now, you know, now that I'm, uh, uh, well, 60, it's like, uh, I've got a lot of past to look at where it's like, man, if I hadn't have said yes to this, or if I hadn't have shown up at this one club, this one night when I didn't want to go out, uh, how would things have come together? You know, mm-hmm. just because the way they have played out. So uh, anyway, that's what I'd say for any musician, any artist kind of person, is I think you dive in, you know? What's the worst that can happen? You get shafted once or twice, and but you never know what comes out.
0: Take the reins and see what happens. Yeah.
2: Yeah. yeah. Cool. Well, well, we'll revisit that sentiment in a
0: second. But yeah. um, what uh, what music are you working on, on now? I mean, I, I realize that no one's really... Doing much of uh, yeah. anything right now, right now, given the virus and everything. But well, uh, are you, it, do you
2: have any projects in the in the fire or anything? Well, I do. There's a few things. Like we just, um, I just sent off the the files for a new scenes record with uh, John Stoll and Jeff Johnson. Oh, man, uh, he's a great
0: guitar player. Yeah,
2: yeah. So we've had that trio for 20 years, and. Wow. Uh, the first record we did was 20 years ago, and and Rick Mandike played tenor sax on it. And uh, Rick has just started playing tenor sax again, so we just recorded in February, just before the shutdown. So uh, mix that, and that's coming out in uh, September. Nice. Cool. Is yeah.
1: that something you mixed yourself?
2: Uh, well, I did it. No, I did with uh, uh, at Studio X with Reed Ready. Gotcha. Yeah. But um, then I did a record in New York, what, a year ago with Benjamin Boone, a sax player out of uh, Fresno, who's done a few projects with us. But he did this session with uh, poets and uh, with these different like Pulitzer Prize winning poets and uh, some pretty interesting characters. And uh, anyway, it's me and I forgot the bass player's name and Ben Monders playing on it and...
0: Oh
2: wow! Well, anyway, it's a pretty cool little project. So that's coming up in October. Cool. And uh, then I just did a uh, <laughs> I play with a uh, band uh, called King of Hawaii. It's a surf band. Oh boy! <laughs> <laughs> Ten years. Yeah. No, it's a it's a it's a cool bunch of guys. We do like two gigs a year, but we just uh, recorded uh, a new record. Um. So I played by myself in this guy's basement so we were we were uh you know practicing social distancing but uh anyway it's pretty slamming actually so that's going to come out in a couple months
1: sweet sounds like nice. you've been keeping busy Three well, it, records and in, in
2: one season is is quite a lot you got to keep moving you got to keep moving but then uh i mean most of my time though spent on uh, working with other people's projects so right now i i just got done with three that we sent off, and then uh, and then I'm working with five or six other people on their records that are coming up in the next three months. Mm. So that's so, what I'm doing record biz-wise.
1: That is a great segue into our next set of questions. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> so you are one of the owners of Origin Records, which is a uh, mostly jazz-focused record label uh, here in town. And I'm really curious to hear about how how it got started. Why why did you decide to found a record label?
2: Uh, well, once again, it's one of those things where it's just kind of uh, it's laying in front of you and you just kind of uh, go, uh, okay let's let's just give this a try I at, in 97 I had three records that we had, one was a new stories thing and then a couple others and um, so I had played on them and produced them and then I was doing the cover for them and they were all kind of coming out at the same time and it it just made sense to put some label on it as opposed to mm. here's more random music you know, so I, uh, uh, called it Origin Records and, and just put together these things. And then, uh, Earshot did a review of those yeah. records together and said, uh, you know, there's a new label in town and it's, and the label sounds like this. And, um, so it was kind of like, oh, well, uh, all right. And a couple other people said, Hey, what about this Origin? Can I get on this? And, um, so it just started kind of like that, and uh, it moved pretty quickly. Actually, it was like uh, you know, within a couple of years, we had twenty or thirty records, and and uh, and now we have going on seven hundred. Wow,
0: yeah.
1: that's a lot of records.
2: It's kind of uh yeah, and uh, the fact that you know I do the covers and uh, Matt uh, does all the web stuff and put together the website and, you know, he's got the, uh, the mind for that kind of thing. And, uh, so we've got our skill sets that make it pretty easy to do and put together. And we've got enough engineers and, you know, we've got the musician circle. It's, um, it's just not that hard. I mean, it's a pain. It's a pain in the ass, but uh, <laughs> but it's not that hard as a structure to figure out and to do. So that's how I ended up, uh, you know, doing it and how I keep it going. Very cool. Cool.
0: So uh, just, you know, I mean, we live in an era where streaming is kind of the new normal, I guess. Um, what is... Or the role of a record label in today's, uh, climate. And, and, and I guess, you know, for those who don't even know, what does a record label really do? I mean, everyone thinks of record labels as some mysterious thing that exists, that holds music in back rooms or something. But, uh, what does, what does that actually do? For those uh, who don't know?
2: Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, it's, to me, it was always, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's like a, uh, gatekeeper a curator a uh, and uh so you're trying to create something out of nothing and and here the something would be personalities and music and a sound and a vibe and a look and a and uh all that stuff is you know you know i mean you guys know going back to all the record labels that you would you know you're buying impulse records and blue note and um that's a pretty strong element, you know, and for Mm -hmm. musicians and people who love music, that's like a whole nother entity. It's like, I have John Coltrane, but I have impulse records and I have, you know, they're they're all this, these monolithic sort of things. And I like that concept, you know, I like that thing of a, you know, to look over this way and, and uh, it makes you feel like this. And um, I don't think that, changes necessarily just because uh, some tech company came up with some easy way to listen to a bunch of music uh, to me I don't think it changes anything as far as like what I do or what a, what a label does uh, it makes uh, the streaming thing makes many things way harder of course like making money but uh, but uh, uh, my thing is the same it's, it's still going to be that uh, you're building community you know Cool. between us and the artists and the audience, um, that, you know, we're all working together. Um, and part of doing it for a while is you see who your audience is. You, uh, you know, that becomes like a, actually a viable, uh, not viable, but some other word I'm looking for. It becomes a part of that whole, uh, relationship thing, that, that picture, um, And once you've got that, once you have artists who count on it and and an audience who counts on it, you can't just walk away for one. And you can't just, uh, you know, like with the streaming thing, you can't just go, okay, we're leaving you high and dry with how you like to experience art and culture and music. And we're going to move over here to where uh, this multi-billionaire would like you to, how he would like you to listen to music, um, that doesn't work. You know, I've got, these relationships are way more important to me than uh, some tech company.
0: So it sounds like you're you're kind of uh, constructing an entity that people could count on to present a certain uh, vibe or personality in terms of the selections that you release. Is that right?
2: Yeah. 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 Yeah, I want people to feel. Uh, well, they're like on a, going on some sort of ride throughout their life. You know, as they uh, buy one record one month and then six months later they buy another record. Uh, there's that nice feeling of like, ah, uh, oh, this is still here, and and this feels this certain way when I uh, reconnect with it again months down the line. And uh, same thing goes for the festival. You know, you want uh, people to come and feel like, oh yeah, thank God, here it is again. Uh, mm. I love this feeling. I love these people. You know? Cool.
1: So question for you. You mentioned uh, a lot about uh, community and maintaining uh, a kind of vibe uh, on the record label that you're running. <laughs> so does how does that work for when you're uh, uh, getting new artists and new records? Do you, scour seattle or the greater united states area for records that fit that vibe and and get them to be on the label or do people apply and how do you and you decide whether or not they fit your vibe well enough or yeah. how, how does that work
2: yeah yeah well that's uh that's part of that easy thing again too for some reason it's just been uh it's it's been easy for all of that uh to kind of flow together. I think part of the thing was we already had a circle of people that we played with and knew and, uh, you know, and people knew us, you know, um, you know, six degrees of separation kind of stuff or whatever. Um, uh-huh. So you had the circle of people. Um, so as soon as there was an entity, the people who were already uh, influenced by the same thing and kind of had the same musical thing uh, would come along and think oh this I fit here you know Mm. my music fits here I see what's going on and and I fit so that's what I've like I've never gone out and hustled anybody to come and join the label I've never uh, seen an artist and gone up and say hey hey you should be coming over here it's Mm. all been somebody deciding that they wanted to be a part of this and then I share what it is about. And, uh, if their music makes sense to us and, and vice versa, then, uh, you know, we got a deal. Cool. But, uh, you know, I'm looking for, for me, I've already got, we've got, you know, 300 and something artists on the label and each one that comes along, I like there to be some sort of tangible, like, uh, you know, how does this person fit in personally and, professionally and sound and uh, vision and all that. And uh, you want each person that comes along to build, to build the, the the community, you know, and and not just have people to come and, uh, you know, sometimes there's lots of different types of people in the music community, just like there is in the world, and a mm-hmm. uh, few people you want to avoid. And so I'm looking for the ones that, uh, that make everything else better, you know? Cool. Very
1: cool. So let's say it's, well, I mean, it is. It's August 2020, and some up-and-coming jazz musician uh, in Seattle has heard of Origin Records and wants to find out uh, how to get on it. How does that process look like for for new folks?
2: Uh, well, yeah, I mean, lots of people reach out to me. there, um, And, uh, you know, occasionally there's stuff that I say uh, no to. But it's not necessarily that it's not good. You know, it's just uh, uh, some things would benefit more from what we do and what, our, what uh, we've turned into at this point. Um, some projects will benefit more from it than others. And so some right. people I say, you know, you should take your money elsewhere. And I think you'll be better benefited from this or that. But uh, usually what I'd suggest, you know, for anybody is like uh, to do your research you um, figure out uh, what this is, figure out who I am and who Matt is and what the thing is all about. And, uh, and I, and so far, I mean, there's been a lot of that on the way to where we are now, where uh, you get people that, uh, that uh, come in and they've already done that research and they go, I think this fits uh-huh. and it makes it pretty easy for me. But uh You know that's what that's what you hope for from uh, any person who's trying to build their own career, is that they've done their research. You know, for sure. uh, You don't want to just uh, uh, waste your time getting hooked up with some label for two or three years, and then you go, ah, that wasn't quite what I had in mind.
0: Mm.
2: You know. So uh, I'd I'd say always do your research.
0: Okay. So so uh, oh, go ahead.
1: Uh, so what, uh, with the advent of the digital age, we talked a little bit about streaming, but, uh, I guess one thing that we hadn't talked too much about is independent releases. Mm -hmm. So Bandcamp and CD Baby and DistroKid and other companies of those ilk have made it incredibly easy for musicians to self-release things these days. Uh, what would you say is the advantage of using a label like Origin or, or some other, other label?
2: Well, uh, f- first, I mean, for everybody's situation is different, you know, and I think uh, that's, what's cool about the, um, all of these resources. Like, I mean, especially when CD baby came along, that mm-hmm. was huge for, you know, uh, not everybody needs to be on the label or should be on the label. Um, you know, there's room for everything. It all depends on what you're trying to do with yourself and your career. But, um, CD Baby uh, got sold by the original person, and then it got sold again, and it got sold again. So mm. uh, my concern with something like CD Baby now is it's you know it's owned by people who need to make uh, uh, many millions of dollars back that they invested. So I'm not sure if it's going to be what we need um, a year from now. Uh, Bandcamp right now is the thing that I'm steering most people towards. Um, Even people on the label, um, you know, like for their own websites and for their own thing. I think Bandcamp right now is the thing. I don't know if I would have said that eight months ago, but um, it uh, seems to be the thing. My concern once again, though, is that uh, these tech companies are all it's all about cash and you know somebody's going to sell it to somebody else and it's going to turn into something else so you want to make sure as an artist that you're always uh you've got options for where you're going to put your stuff and what you're going to do with it and how you're going to and just pay attention and be ready to bag on certain things you know sure depending on how things move um But anyway, all of those things are great, you know? It's like for um, certain people, there was one, it was a piano trio that wanted to um, release with us. And to me, it wasn't quite the right thing. And also, they weren't really doing anything outside of, they didn't really need airplay across the U.S. They didn't really need a lot of these outlets. They just had this nice record. So I started, told him to just uh, do it on CD Baby and uh, you know it hooks into a bunch of different distribution things
0: mm-hmm. so
2: uh, anyway he went and did that and like uh, a month and a half later uh, he gave me a call and he said uh, yeah so uh, Disc Union in Japan because our record kind of sounds like Bill Evans a little bit they ordered like 300 copies and then wow. months later they ordered 300 more hmm. so it's like uh Yeah. So it's like, you know, there's, there's opportunity in all of that. Um, For, for, I think for something like a label, I would think about if you're an artist, think about what you're looking for out of your career and your, what do you need? uh, And then see if there's labels that fit that. And if that's a community you want to be a part of and uh, you know, You want to make sure you still own your rights to your record. For sure. uh, Which some labels don't do. So, uh, you know, figure out what works for you. And, uh, you know, but a lot can be gotten out of just hanging out and doing band camp and and working your social media. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of options now that uh, didn't exist 25 years ago.
0: For sure. How can a musician uh, guarantee that they own their not only mechanical recordings, but, uh, uh, wow, why can't I can't think of the other name?
2: Uh, <laughs> the mechanical composition rights and, thing.
0: yeah, composition rates uh, to their recordings. I mean, for those who don't know. Uh,
2: well, so, uh, yeah, when, well, when you write your tune, you just uh, make sure you register them and make sure you've got uh, your ASCAP or BMI, you've got that all set. And then um, as soon as you record your record, you own, you paid for it. You own the recording. It's yours. Um, As soon as you get hooked up with a label, uh, lots of labels are taking already made masters. You know, like you make your master and you go to a label and they go, yeah, I'll take this. Um, We're going to take over the rights of the recording. Uh, We're going to take your publishing, like your, the publishing side of your writing. You're still going to get your writer's share, but we're going to take your publishing hmm. because they need to make money somewhere. There's CDs are not selling like they used to, as you might know. And, uh, <laughs> streaming is making such little money, uh, that's one of the issues with getting hooked up with a label is they've got to make money somehow, you know? So, uh, usually it's, if it's not going to be CD sales, then it's going to be, uh, if they get the rights of your, uh, sound recording, uh, it means if you get great play on XM or, uh, uh, satellite radio any of that kind of stuff, uh, the sound recording owner would get all of that money. And that can be either pennies or it can be twenty grand. So it's uh, you know it's good to just uh, at least know what you're up against when you're going to sign up with a label or when you're going to do things yourself. Make sure you know the different legalities and make sure you know what you own and and how they're licensed and how all that stuff works. Fantastic. Uh, I've heard of a thing
0: called OA two. Yeah. What is the difference between that and Origin?
2: Uh, Nothing. Ah, okay. (laughs) Basically, basically, uh, with Origin, uh, it was, I mean, we were five years into it, and we were doing four or five records a month, and it was just getting to be kind of overkill, you know? Like, uh, So we would send uh, records to a magazine or to a radio station, and they would go, Ah, okay, I've got 5 new records here. Uh I'm not going to play 5 records on my radio show. I'll play 2 of them. So, uh same thing with the magazine. They're not going to review 5 origin records, but they might uh they might review 2. So, just like any other uh record label that's growing, we added a sister label. Um mm. So the, the point wasn't to create a uh, a junior league or anything like that. It was just to have a, uh, just a different entity. So, um, so at this point we've got almost 200 records on OA2. Mm. And uh, That's a good so, idea. yeah. So each month I'll, uh, you know, like we might put out six records one month, but it'll be three on origin, three on OA2. And yeah, uh, you know, all these for some reason, every radio station, every writer knows that they go together. Um, but just something about it being on a different label, and uh, and they can, you know, play them back to back. They can review both. So um, anyway, so it's just uh, one of those little uh, tricks. And uh, you know, and the labels, each of them, kind of, when I'm working on each one each month, with a new record comes in. Uh, it's the artists who define the label. It's not, you know, it's not the name of the label or anything like that. Um, It's the artists and the sounds that define what it is. So each label goes through these different things. As I watch, you know, they just kind of stroll off in a different direction for a couple months and then they'll like origin i might get kind of uh, esoteric for a couple months and it'll come back to this real mainstream uh thing and a big band record and then it'll wander away to something else meantime origin records is doing a completely different path so it's really interesting to watch how they uh each play off of each other and you know as i'm sitting in the middle of it deciding which goes where and all that definitely
0: it sounds like you're in a really cool position
2: it's kind of fun. I mean, that's yeah. it, that's that. Uh, if it were just business, if it were just accounting and dealing with distributors and all that stuff, uh, I would walk away in a second. But uh, you know, <laughs> I'm still dealing with artists every day, and uh, you know, we're talking about their projects. Uh, they're in a in a moment where it's uh, it's very exciting. You know, they have got a new project. They're excited about it. They're uh, they're looking forward. And so to be a part of that every month is uh, fun, you know?
0: Definitely. Uh, well, we have another big thing that we kind of wanted to touch on uh, okay. in this interview. Okay. And I know you do so many things. We, uh, we have to get a little bit of everything. Uh, and that is the Ballard Jazz Festival. Oh, yeah. And that's not a small thing that we're talking about. I mean, it's a full-fledged jazz festival. Uh um, right. I've been a part of it. It was awesome. Um, And yeah, so let's start at the
2: beginning with that as well, I guess. How did that start? Uh, That was, uh, oh, it was good. Like down when I was living in Ballard, right across from the Tractor Tavern for 12 years, um, I got a regular gig at the Old Town Alehouse, which was just a couple doors down from the tractor every Tuesday night. So we did that for eight years and one of those first records that was out on origin was a live thing that we did from there. So there was this little kind of ballard music thing going on. And, um, I think Gilbreth came up one time in like 2002 Mm -hmm. and wondered if we wanted to do a little ballard thing for, um, the earshot festival. Mm. Um, so Matt and I were going, uh, oh yeah, yeah, that sounds, uh, that sounds cool. So we kind of, uh, went overboard and, you know, like made posters and uh, put together five bands and uh, just kind of got everything together. And Matt ran around and like hung 500 posters. And, you know, it was kind of a, uh, just to see how it would play out. And um, it's a lot of posters. Yeah, it was, it was (laughs) was nutty. So uh, anyway, we just, you know, see how it played out and it was really cool and uh we had a great time and then um a couple people from the ballard chamber of commerce came down to that and uh so then they called us up and they said uh oh that was great we would love to do like a festival in ballard and uh and would you guys help us with this and it was like uh yeah, sure. So we go in and they go, yeah, we want to bring in like Brantford. And, you know, so immediately they're talking about like, you know, 150 grand or something. Whoa. And and this was the Ballard Chamber of Commerce who does not have 150 grand. So it was, it was kind of like, well, you know, you're not going to be able to do that. So let's uh, talk about what you can do. Mm-hmm. And so um, anyway, just kind of put together this festival with this, uh, it was the Mars Hill Church down there, uh, you might know about them. Heard uh, of them, I think. Yeah, it was. Uh, this was when it first built up, and it was like they built this like uh, they took an old hardware store and just turned it into like a performing arts center kind of place. It was just real nice, and that hmm. massive PA system it was just great. And uh, and they were being pretty cool, and so we did uh, concert there with Brian Blade Fellowship and. Um, Vincent Herring and forgot what else. Oh, Nancy King, nice. and and then we did uh, the Jazz Walk and we did clinics and it was all one day in two thousand three. And uh, anyway, so for a couple of years we kind of did that with the Chamber of Commerce, and then um, about three years into it, um, you know, they were handling like uh, ticketing and all that kind of stuff and the bank account, so we just had to. Uh, kind of pick groups and also figure out the logistics of the whole thing, since they didn't really know what they were doing. Not that we did, but, uh, they definitely didn't. So, uh, anyway, (laughs) three years into that, uh, chamber called Matt and I in and we were thought we were going to go plan the next festival. And, uh, and, uh, they just kind of said, so why, why are we doing this festival? And uh, Matt and I are looking at each other going, because mm, you wanted to, and you <laughs> asked us. Uh, anyway, so they bagged out. And so Matt and I have been doing it since 2006, maybe, I think, hmm. on our, our own. own. And um, once again, though, it's like, you know, you just dive in and, uh, and, and you figure out that you know more than you think you know. And uh, you study up really fast on the stuff you don't know. Definitely. And then and here we are, however many, 18 years later. Um, uh, and of course, uh, it would be real easy to walk away and because it is a lot of work. But uh, uh, I think it's kind of a cool thing we've built and the audience is there for us and the musicians. So it's, uh, yeah, it's it's pretty cool.
0: Yeah, I would say definitely keep it going. And congrats on, on keeping it running this long.
2: Yeah, thanks. Thanks. It's it's kind of amazing. And uh, uh, I have to call out to certain <laughs> people like Paul Roush, came on board a few years ago and uh, you know we would need volunteers and he'd go, I'll do it. And he'd come back with 60 volunteers. Um, so, you know, like we do what we can do, but uh, uh, you know, once again, it's a community or Definitely. no way. Yeah.
0: Uh, not that this would be unusual, but Earshot, the other major festival in Seattle, um, is kind of spread out over the course of a month or two or or more. Uh, Is there a reason you guys decided to do a more conventional uh, weekend festival?
2: Well, for me, I mean, I've been playing festivals since uh, the late 70s. And, you know, for all musicians, I mean, I mean, Max, you know, you you show up to a festival, and within 20 minutes, you go, oh, this is great.
0: Oh, yeah, you see all kinds of people and musicians. And this is good, to yeah.
2: With and, yeah. And with everybody. Yeah, and you'll show up to other ones, and it doesn't take long, and you go, ah, this will never last. Or, well, okay, we'll get paid, and then I'm out of here. But uh, So there's been, you know, quite a few festivals over the years where you just walk in and you just go, man, this feels great. I hope this happens every year. Um, like the Port Townsend Festival, I did that for 17 years. And uh, uh, back in those days, it was just, you'd show up and just everybody's there and you're hanging, and it's a great time. And, you know, the music is the music, but the hang is what, you know. Yeah. To me, that's what it's all about. So um, anyway, that's what, uh, what we've been looking for with this is just – uh, I like things better when they're all in one place and everybody has to show up together. Um, like, uh, you know, there's certain little things you could do like everybody could print their tickets at home and then just kind of go to the venue they want to go to. But I like the idea of having everybody have to show up at a central place. Everybody has to see each other. There has to be some energy, the, you know, that comes from that. And, uh, so, uh, that's a big deal for me with this is I want it to feel like a festival and I want it to feel like, uh, you know, like, uh, you're seeing people that you haven't seen in a long time. And definitely, you
0: know, I, yeah, I like that. Kind of sad to talk about gatherings and hangs and festivals yeah.
2: right now.
0: <laughs> <I didn't, Yeah. laughs> now that I think about it.
2: it. It sucks big time, doesn't it? Yeah.
0: Actually, speaking of that, uh, do you guys have a plan for next year if, um, the virus thing isn't uh, sorted out?
2: Well, I mean, what are you going to do? It's like... Uh, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. We, uh, we reassessed for November, and then uh, and then America did what America does and uh, blew it. So, uh, yeah, I mean, right now we're set for a spring, but... Um, you know, who knows how that's going to play. And also who knows what, uh, bars and restaurants and businesses are Mm -hmm. still going to be around then. But, um, uh, we're, we're working on a couple things. I think we might try to do something in November where we do a, uh, um, you know, a virtual thing, but, uh, just try to keep, you know, some stuff going and, yeah. Uh, but I uh, I want to make sure, you know, it's cool and it and it and it has a thing to it and uh then we'll shoot for May and 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 see if that'll happen, but uh either way, I mean, we've got uh I've got a storage locker down here with PA's and lights and all this crap. So, um I guess we should use it, you know.
0: Yeah, definitely.
2: Yeah.
0: Oh, man. <laughs>
1: Well, thank you so much, John, for um, sharing such wonderful stories and of your well-storied career in in so many different facets. Um, we are close to time here, and uh, yeah, thank you fun. again for joining us.
2: Yeah, no, man, thanks both of you. This is a great thing you're doing, and uh, and glad to be a part of it. This is cool. Yeah, thank you so much. Wonderful. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you.
1: For all of you listeners, you've been listening to Jazz Talk Seattle. Our guest has, is John Bishop. My name is Josh. Our other host is Max. If you like what you're hearing, uh, we're out. Uh, we have an episode out every month. Look us up, Jazz Talk Seattle, on Facebook, SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, wherever you get your regular podcast, and you'll be able to find us. Thanks again for listening.